Chaos is an indicator that change is required. Self-control is strength. Right thought is mastery. Calmness is power. Peace be still. Patience is the calm acceptance that things can happen in a different order than the one you have in mind. Better to fight for something than live for nothing. Those who inspire lead. Daiman Jinman is a Haitian proverb that means beyond every mountain, there's another mountain. We're going to ask you this question all f***ing day long. Why are you here? The more powerful language we speak, the less power we leak. My name is Luke Kayam. We are a brotherhood of men committed to show up. This is the Fathers of the Future podcast. Show up! Don't quit! Do the work! Lead with love! Trust the process! Welcome to the Fathers of the Future podcast. I am joined by my brother and my barber, Drew Meskin, sitting on first in Maine in downtown Scottsdale. It's your new barbershop. It's more than a barbershop, man. This is a space. It's got a lot of energy. It's got a lot of light. It's on an amazing corner in a great neighborhood, but it didn't always look this nice. Not at all. (laughs) And I don't mean the four walls. We've known each other going on about six years now. We met from your roommate, who was my son's football, baseball, basketball coach, big Hawaiian guy named Cam. Yep. How'd you meet him? How'd you get hooked up with him? He played baseball for the White Sox with a guy that I grew up with in Pennsylvania. And they came by when I moved here. They started coming to me to get their haircuts when I was at a barbershop called Exclusives. And we just clicked, connected, hung out, and yeah. Yeah, shout out to my boy, Cam. He is a big Hawaiian, a huge Hawaiian, three-sport Hawaiian, amazing with the kids. My son fell for him right away. And when you have a, a positive role model like that in your kid's life, man, you, you really appreciate it. And then getting to know him a little bit, he went to St. Louis in Hawaii. I went to Punahou, so we, we know some of the same places. But you came to the house once and you gave me a haircut, and I think it took two hours. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. That was a hard time for you. Yeah, it was a very difficult time. You're two years sober today. Two years plus sober. Yes, sir. Man, just give us a little bit on on how you got through some of those hardships, those challenges, those limiting beliefs, and getting out of your own way to get here. Honestly, it all changed for me when I went to a place called Cornerstone Healing Center, and I saw guys that had what I wanted that were living beautiful lives with beautiful people, had amazing relationships, had high integrity, did honorable things, and they used just like me before. So when I saw that, I just bought into the recipe. Whatever you guys tell me to do, I'm going to do. And I was kicking and screaming a little bit, but I went for it and it changed my life entirely. But that was really the time for years. I couldn't imagine life without getting high, whether that was weed alcohol, coke, a laundry list of things. I was most recently addicted to fentanyl and that's what I was coming off of most recently. So that was really tough, but I couldn't imagine life without that. And I didn't think that life was so beautiful without those things. I thought that people who weren't high were probably just sad and upset and didn't really have that fulfilled of lives which I was obviously completely wrong about, but I needed the psychic change necessary to help me realize that and live a life beyond my wildest dreams. Truly retraining your brain to think and operate differently. I was 14 when I started drinking and drank heavily for about 12 plus years. For me, it was just, it was easy. I was young. It was a different time and I got away with it. 
but looking back on it, like all of those mistakes that I made, all those challenges I faced, they were all self-induced as we know that most addicts are that way. When did you start using and what was that like? Cause you come from an old city, right? Yeah. I started, so the first time I drank, I was like 10 or 11 years old. I was actually with my dad in Cabo and they rewarded me and my friend for jumping off of a cliff, doing a cliff dive that we were nervous about. You guys can each have a beer. And it was Coors Light and we took shot glasses and took shots of the Coors Light. I don't remember if I felt any effect from it. I probably did to a certain extent. We were also on vacation. I don't know, but that was my first experience with the mind-altering substance was at Penthouse Suite in Cabo San Lucas right on the beach in, what, like 96 or something like that. So that gave me a free feeling and relationship with alcohol from an early age. Then when I went back home, my dad always lived out here. I grew up in Philadelphia. And when I went back home to Philadelphia, me and my friends started, probably six months later, we drank at this girl's house. Her parents had a full liquor cabinet. We got hammered off like Jack Daniels. I puked everywhere and I loved every minute of it. It was, I was defiant like that. I started smoking weed around 12, somewhere in there. I went to juvenile detention the first time I was 15. What for? I was smoking weed in the shed at my parents' house. This has a lot of parental kind of notes to it right now. So I was smoking weed in the shed at my parents' house, and my stepdad caught me. The interesting thing is this. I had a babysitter at the time. She was super hot, 23-year-old Puerto Rican chick. She was awesome. She was like a friend, but she would let me smoke weed in her car in the driveway, right? So it was like a Sunday or a Monday. She wasn't working. It was a holiday weekend. So my parents were there. A couple friends slept over. I was like, let's go smoke some weed. We go outside. Car's not there. So we go in the shed to smoke. And my stepdad came in and he was pissed, made my friends walk home. I'm grounded. And I just got really angry, punched a hole in the wall. I was just a pissed off kid. They called the cops on me. And I hopped out the back window and took off. And the cops had found like seeds and bags and big knives in my room. And they went went through your room. Oh, yeah, yeah. They said my parents let them in the house. They searched my room. I guess I was I was definitely troubled at the time, obviously. And my mom had talked to, I guess, like the local dare officer and some cops. This is what she says. I don't know. And they basically said, you need to send him away to get, it'll help him out. It did the opposite. So they called the cops. They took me to juvenile detention. And I remember these cops are telling me they found a condom in my wallet. And I had a girlfriend at the time. And they're like, if you don't tell us where you got all this stuff from, we're calling that girl's dad and like telling him that you're fucking his daughter. Excuse my language. All this crazy stuff. And I remember them saying, you're going to need that when you get to juvie. It was just a lot of fear stuff, mm-hmm. man. It was a lot of fear. And then disempowering versus what we know now is to be more empowering. Exactly. Exactly. So when I got there and I was like, this isn't that bad. It sucked being away. But you think of jail as a young kid and you think it's different than what it ends up to be, at least in my young mind at the time. I was like, eh, I didn't get away with stuff, but the consequences, they sucked, but it was more being away from school, being away from friends. And up to this point, I was an honor roll student. I was a star soccer player on the soccer team. I played club soccer. 
I did all the stuff. I just like to party at the same time. But having that happened, a lot of my friends' parents that were the quote unquote good kids didn't want me, didn't want their kids hanging out with me. So I ended up hanging out with the quote unquote rougher kids whose parents weren't around, whose parents didn't care, who let them smoke weed at their house, who bought them alcohol as long as we stayed there. You had a pass. You got a pass, yeah, yeah, exactly. And my parents worked so much that they're just trying to discipline me. But my mom worked in Manhattan and we lived outside of Northeast Philly. So she was on a hour and a half, two hour commute to and from work every day. My stepdad worked in North Jersey, very similar with him. They both worked in corporate America. We had babysitters that let me smoke weed in the driveway. Mm. My dad lived out here. I saw him like once a year for most of my childhood. So I was just, yeah, it was just a perfect storm, dude. And so how many years does that roll for? I was, so I went to juvie, I get out, I would drink on the weekends. I was getting UAs three times a week. But if I asked, I had to ask my probation officer if I could sleep at a friend's house, not just my parents, now my probation officer. And if I slept at a friend's house, I wouldn't get UA'd the next day. So I would try to get as many times as I could just so I could go out and drink with my friends. Other than that, if they wouldn't let me, I would drink a little bit and then drink a bunch of water so that I could wake up in the morning and give a clean UA. This is before it's like 2002, 2003. So how old are you at this time? 15, 16, 15, 16 into 17. So then I get off probation. I was also experimenting with the mushrooms. I did acid the first time in school for some field trip, wild stuff, because that doesn't come up in the UA. I had to be out of myself to feel okay. For whatever reason, I had to be out of myself to feel okay since I was a child, really. Let's see. So I end up messing around with what was it, Valium. I get pulled over six months after getting off probation. I just got my license, my driver's license. I just got a car. So I'm like 16 and a half, I guess. And I get pulled over and we have 900 bucks. We're going to get a quarter pound of weed, like 900 bucks, a bunch of Valium, probably like 80, 90 Valium. And thank God you hadn't picked up yet. Yeah, but they did. Yeah, but they charged us. Yeah, thank God that we hadn't, but I still got whacked because I had that previous stint in juvenile detention, just got off probation. So when I went to court, oh yeah, also, all right, this is a, I got a DUI two days before I had court for that mm. at 17 years old, just racking it up. And I still did pretty well in school, which is the craziest part about it. So anyway, so... I'm in court, I get the DUI, and I have those charges. When you're under 18, it doesn't really matter what they charge you with. It's up to the discretion of the judge and the probation officer. The charges aren't going to stick long term. When you go to court later, which I found out later, they can pull that up. The judges can. But So I go to court, and the judge was going to let me off with probation. My probation officer stood up and said, no, he needs to go away. And they wanted me to do six to eight months or something like that, which is a long time for a 17-year-old kid. But they said, if you move to Arizona and live with your dad, you can go to a treatment center out there. Just don't come back here. So I came out here. I went to some treatment center in Chandler. And that's where I went to my first AA meeting. And I didn't think I was an addict. Didn't think I was an alcoholic. They were like, you'll be back. And I laughed and I was like, fuck you guys. I'm not 
I'm never coming back here. I'm not one of you guys. I just like to drink alcohol and smoke weed. I wouldn't even admit that I did anything else at the time. Because you were in denial, just pure, it's young ad- uh, denial, right? Yeah. It's ego driven. I'm a kid. I can do whatever I want. I'm untouchable. Exactly. exactly. I'll figure this out later. I was just having fun. So I'm in that. Uh, so I go to that treatment center. I get out. It's vastly different. North Scottsdale to where I grew up, where I grew up is a lot more blue collar guys, dads are construction workers, their their moms are secretaries, things like that. Philly's a top three hard city in the country. Yeah. yeah and absolutely. then you go to North Scottsdale and kids are driving Range Rovers to school. And my dad was hard on me. So he's like, you're not having a cell phone. You're not driving anywhere at all. You're not driving my car when I'm in it. You're not driving my car when I'm not in it. So I'm 18 years old, riding the bus, no cell phone, nothing with all the, and I'm not getting you clothes cause you're an asshole and you just got out of juvie and whatever. So now I'm thrust into this completely new environment. I just got out of doing some time back East cause I was in the juvenile detention facility out there for three months before the month here. So I just did four months as a 17 year old kid and I'm at Desert Mountain High School in North Scottsdale. Wow with no car, no cell phone, no nothing. And it drove me absolutely insane. And this is the same father who I saw here at your grand opening last week. Yes. Who's helped support you and build this business. 100%, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is proof, okay, of all the dads out there that are going through some things with their kids or who went through some things that you have to have some tough love. It's what I was missing. I never had a dad grab me by the back of my neck, tell me what the fuck I was doing wrong. Mm -hmm. And so to hear that story about your dad, how he was firm with you, and then fast forward, how many years later is that? Oh, that's- 18 DM, and now you are- 36, yeah, yeah. 18 years. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that it is good to have that tough love. It's very good. Now, what I did do though, is I ran back to Philly. Because it was easier to live with your mom and your stepdad. Way easier to live with my mom and my stepdad. Not only was it easier, but that's where all my friends were and that's where the comfortability was. Now also remember this, I was born in Phoenix and my mom moved us to New Jersey first when I was like six years old to live with my stepdad. So I felt out of place when I got there. I felt like I didn't really fit in as a young kid. And then when I'm finally feel like I fit in and was a part of, I get uprooted and sent out here. So now I'm clawing to get back to where I feel accepted. Also because of what we just talked about, I did not feel a part of here at all. I felt the opposite. I felt outcast. The way that I dressed, the way that I spoke was just two different worlds from the people that I was in high school with. And Scottsdale was different in 2003 than it is today. Sure. It was smaller. It wasn't so developed up there. And the whole city was small. I think it grew a lot in 2010 to 20. So yeah, it felt like a small place. It was just, yeah, I was out of my element. So I went back and went on probation there and graduated high school and got off probation the same day. Wow. Did you go tear it up that night? I probably smoked a blunt that night, would be my guess. But I was always like, I'm not gonna... My intention was never to just pedal to the metal. As crazy as that sounds from what my childhood was, I was always like, I will never do opiates, I'll never do heroin, I'll never do... I'll never smoke crack. I did all that. I've done all that. Smoked crack once for six months. Yeah. 
So I got to all those things. I crossed all those imaginary lines in the sand that I said I would never cross. Do you, did you feel anything while you were crossing? Did you have the emotional awareness to understand that you were violating your own code? Nope. You don't know that you're crossing it until you're already past mm -hmm. it because you, your mind and your addiction lives in your mind. Addiction is a disease of the brain and it, it justifies things like that. So I knew that I was, you're doing it obviously because you're doing it, but it's how it'll just be this one time and it's not that bad. And I see other people doing it and, and then you do it and you're like, it's not as crazy as they make it out to seem on TV, but it is. But it is. But while you're in it, it's not that crazy. It's like skydiving. I'm sure you've gone skydiving before. People are like, oh, that's the craziest thing ever. You do it and you're like, yeah, it was cool, but it's not that extreme to me, at least. So it, it justified your actions then when you were doing it. Yeah. Oh, right? yeah. This isn't that bad. I could do this tomorrow. I'm not going to do it tomorrow, but I could. And then I do it tomorrow. And then I'm not going to do it the next day. You swear up and down the next day. You're not going to do any of that stuff. And then 10 minutes to an hour later... You're on your way to the plug's house and you're getting high in an hour and a half. And this is why I believe sobriety, recovery, whatever we want to call it, it can't be forced on a person because like you, I got my first DUI when I was 18. Mm -hmm. I got my second one three years later. I got into two fights with two off-duty, talk about bad luck, one off-duty police officer, one police force captain's son. So both of them, boys and blue. And at the mm -hmm. time, I didn't respect anybody, let alone police officers. Of course. But they, get, they wanted to give me a year, okay, in California. So I hired an attorney, went through the process. I ended up settling for 30 days. I turned myself in. I'm kicked out in 48 hours, nonviolent criminal, fed kick. I don't belong in there. I learned absolutely fucking nothing. Mm -hmm. And then now, oh, I'm golden. It's like that scene when Pac walks out of jail mm -hmm. and he's, he looks like a cross between McGregor and Tupac, the way he's walking. I learned nothing. And it could not have been forced on me at that time. I didn't care. It had to come from me. And if I can go even deeper, it didn't come from me. It came from my kids. I got sober when my daughter was born and I realized I was the same motherfucker who was doing the same thing and the same patterns that I was just a few years ago. But now I have another human being and that other human being is a female and she's a girl and she's going to need her dad. And by the grace of God, we hear a lot of people in recovery say that. I got 15 years last week and I was able to speak Congrats. about it on stage. Thank you, brother. I was able to speak about it on stage because most men and most people will not be as vulnerable as you and I are right here, right now. But that vulnerability is, is power. And whatever you've been holding in and holding on to and in exchange for the addiction, that's the shit that has to get let go of. And we can't continue to have that blame, shame, game, guilt. But I blamed it all on my dad, who I never met. And so do you remember where the majority of your blame came from at that time? Was it divorce? Was it moving? Was it anything? Oh, yeah, there's a ton of that. Well, let me go into what you were just saying a little bit real quick, too, before I get into that. So the reason there's an older guy named Rich who is a big time guy in the AA group that I'm in. He's, he has 30 years and he says we have to talk about these things and get vulnerable because we don't know who our message might help. Someone might listen to this podcaster hear us and they know someone struggling or they know someone who knows someone struggling and that could save their lives. And it's up to us to be the example of how the change can occur 
that, that could really help save these people. And it's if it's not us, who? And if it's not now, when? There's a lot of people out there struggling. So the blame that I put was on the, not the divorce. All right, so I'm going to get more vulnerable. Let's go. Let's go. I'm going to get more vulnerable right now. When my mom moved us to Pennsylvania, she said, I'm like thinking like, if she heard this, she'd be livid. But all right, so she moved us to Pennsylvania. Hopefully she doesn't listen to this. So she moved us to New Jersey first, and she told me that it was because she couldn't find work in Arizona. And I'll just say there was marital problems with my dad. She blamed a lot of stuff on my dad, stuff that I'm not going to go into because it's not my place to do that, but stuff that would make a young man feel deep resentment towards his father for, like deep resentment, hated him and told me, never bring that up to him, never say anything to him about that. Just trust me, that's what happens. Fast forward to... 2008 I'm in college at West Virginia University my mom is you got into college after all that after all that yeah and I got my degree wow yeah that's huge yeah I'm going I'm in college I go for the first semester first I went to community college just because I didn't know where I wanted to go and I just got out of juvenile detention I'm not thinking about college at all but I know that's what I need to do. That's the trajectory of my life as designed by my mother to some degree. And my dad, they ex I, I got good grades always. I did well on the SATs. I tested very well. Wasn't much for of a homework guy, but because of my testing ability, I always got pretty good grades. So I go away to school. And when I leave, my little brother decides to move out here to live with my dad because he's never lived with my dad before he was maybe a year old when we moved back east. So his relationship was strained with my dad and not because they didn't like each other, but just they never lived together. They only had a small bit a year to get to know each other. So my mom is moving back out here, I think, to follow my little brother. And she also liked Arizona more than she liked back east. They asked me and my buddy to move boxes, to, to move all their stuff into a U-Haul truck. So me and my buddy are doing that. They were giving us a couple dollars to do it. We're cool with that. My buddy's carrying a box and he goes, hey, Drew, you need to look at this. And I'm, cause he knew a bit. I was a little frustrated that they were moving back out here and leaving me on the East Coast, so to speak. Where would I go for summers? All this stuff. Now my, my life is uprooted again, right? I don't have stability. I don't have roots, anything that I can go back to. So he says, you need to look at this. And I'm like, dude, just hurry up. Let's get this shit done so we can get out of here. And he's like, no, dude, you really need to look at this. So it's a letter from my stepdad to my mom. And it's when we were still living in Arizona when I was a kid. And I have two older stepbrothers. And he's basically saying, it's a love letter. And he's saying, I would really love for you guys to move out here so that I can stay close to my boys while they're growing up. They were, I think... 11 and 13 or something like that at the time. And then when they graduate high school, we could move back to Arizona in five years or whatever the case may be. I just want to be around my boys while they're growing up. I don't want to abandon them, this and that. So I'm like, what the fuck? So you put his kids in front of me and my brother's relationship with my father and then tried to spin it on my dad that it was his fault, but really it was your love life that you uprooted us, moved us away from our family. Like my grandmother had moved here from Chicago to be closer to us. And 
it just blew my mind. I was pissed, right? And then when I asked her about it, she's like, oh, that's not what really, and I'm like, it's in a letter. It was a lot of gaslighting, false reality kind of stuff. There was a lot of that throughout my childhood. And uh, that kind of explains why I never felt okay with myself and without going too much into uh, mental health stuff of relatives, because it's not really my place to do. That's where a lot of the blame came from. And to give another example, my little brother was put on bipolar meds when he was like three years old. And there was, he's very resentful towards that right now and doesn't have a good relationship with my mom. Not of her fault. We do the best that we can when we can and we do the best that we know how to do. So I had resentments towards that, not having the my dad in my life for the most part, even though he's a, he's an amazing father, he just wasn't around that much. You go to games, he's not going to be there because he's out here. Now I had a great stepdad who did go to those games. Are they still together, your mom and your stepdad? Yes, they are. And I love my stepdad to death. He's amazing. My dad thanks him all the time. It was just, it was strange growing up like that. My dad would come stay at my mom's house when he would visit us. With my stepdad there, my dad has no chill, dude. You know what I mean? He's just, yeah, I'll just stay there. I don't want to spend money on a hotel. <laughs> and it was like awkward and weird, but it worked. And so when did you start cutting hair? When did that even begin for you? Was it when you were in your youth and teenagers or So the first time that I, I told my little brother that I, could, I wanted to cut his hair, I was probably like 15 and he was 10, something like that. We were actually out here in Arizona visiting my dad. It was the summertime and I was just like, let me cut your hair. And I had beard trimmers and I thought that a one would go right into a two. And I told him if I mess it up, you never have to let me cut your hair again. This is way before YouTube and all that stuff, of course. So I put that line in there and I couldn't get it out because there's no adjustability on beard trimmers either. So he flipped out. He was like, I'm never letting you touch my hair again. My dad took him to great clips to get it fixed. The lady told me, don't ever touch clippers again. Leave it to the professionals. So I don't again, even though I was interested in it. I remember being a little kid and wanting one of those little dolls that you could cut the hair on because I just want, was interested to see how hair would fall. But it, was, it wasn't masculine, so it's not something that I would have asked for. But I was interested in it. Fast forward to college. And my buddy is cutting my other buddy's hair in our dorms and totally butchered it. And it's like a three all the way around and just a, an edge up. And the guy that's done on his mix, he has great hair, lighter complexion. The haircut, if edged up right, would look really good. So I was making fun of him. He said, you think you could do better? I said, absolutely. So he hands me the clippers. I do the haircut and then everyone starts asking me for haircuts in the dorms. And that's You're what, 19, 20? 20. Okay. Yeah. And then how soon did you know that this was going to be, obviously you're still, you haven't gotten sober, you haven't gotten clear, but how long before you know that this is going to be a skill and a trade that you possess and can use to become a professional? A while, six more years. So still just hobby for fun. You can cut people's hair. I was doing it in college. So the thing about it is I didn't realize the money that could be in barbering and not that life's all about money but i'm in college i got an ego people are like dude you should be a barber because i'm cutting people i got a little barber chair it's the first thing that i bought off of the internet ever was a barber chair and i put it in this little sunroom at my house and i would cut my friend's hair for five ten bucks and there was a few people that were like you should be a barber dude and i was like i'm in college bro i'm gonna do some other shit you know what i mean because that's 
what I thought life should be. You won't be successful unless you get a degree and then get a job working for someone else. Exactly. Entrepreneurship definitely wasn't what it is today. Today, there are guys like Gary Vee or even say, don't go to college. Oh yeah. Learn a trade, learn a hustle, and then teach people what you did yourself. And I agree with that. And my dad was an, always an entrepreneur. So I had that and he's been successful in it. And a lot of his friends are entrepreneurs. All of his best friends are entrepreneurs and they're very successful. But I was living in more of my mom and my stepdad's world who were the corporate America people. That's what I was more driven to. My mom wanted me to study finance and be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. That was her dream for me. And I bought into that because I was young and that's what was being pushed. And that's what I saw as the best option where I grew up was okay, people's parents who work in corporate America do well, construction, I don't really want to do that. Those were like the two options that I saw growing up in Pennsylvania. Now I go through school, I get out, I move out here because I didn't really have anywhere to go back to Pennsylvania. I came out here to do an internship with my dad at my dad's company. He does, he patented a couple TV lift systems, telescopic lift systems. So if you want a TV to pop out of the floor, the ceiling, whatever, that's what he does. So I did an internship there and uh, thinking that he would give me a job after I did it there, he would not give me a job. He said that I needed to go and make my own way and do my own thing. We start, we bought into a franchise that's based out of Philadelphia called Rita's and we opened one up in Tempe here and I did not like it at all, man. Cause you had to do what they told you to do. That and I love kids, but I don't like marketing to kids. I don't like, it's just not my forte. And they had these dorky names like treat team member for the employees and all this stuff that was just, I was a young guy. I still had an ego. I thought I was too cool for that. And to some degree, it, I had no passion for it. It would have just been a money play. So after about a year and a half, we sold that. We probably just barely made the money back that we had put into it. And then I decided to go into barbering. I decided while I was there running the numbers for that and looking at Instagram, which was a relatively new thing, and seeing the marketing behind that and that marketing food on a picture, you can't taste the food. A haircut, you can see the haircut. You can see what the product is and what you're going to gain from it. So I was just like, well, that's basically free marketing. I'm looking at all these numbers. Rita's did like TV commercials and radio commercials and all this stuff. And I was like, it's really not that, that difficult to have done. And I'd rather be doing this stuff for myself. I looked at, I talked to the barber that I had in Pennsylvania. I was very close with him. I'd been getting my haircut from him for probably eight, nine years at the time. And I talked about numbers with him and they looked really good. And he offered me an internship at his shop and then, yeah. And so where is the addiction during all of this? Oh, it's rampant. Yeah. So can you directly correlate, obviously, the success in business with the sobriety piece? Cause oh, a billion percent. Yeah. yeah. I was good enough at cutting hair that I had some clientele, but I wasn't on time. I was never on time. I took too long with haircuts. I was selfish, self-centered, and I thought Drew mattered more than anyone else. And that is not good for business. Not good for business at all. And Alcoholics Anonymous, I can't even say it's sobriety. It's Alcoholics Anonymous and God that kind of reparented me and helped me see the world through a different lens with being punctual, with having integrity and all those things that we discussed at the beginning. And that that just goes right into the business 
side of it. Everything that goes with drugs does not, and it doesn't look professional when your house has a slight stench of marijuana. When clients come by, if you're at your house or people are smoking a blunt out back of the shop and they come in and their hands smell like weed and you work in that shop, it's not good and I won't have that at this shop. You can do what you want to do outside of work, but there will be none of that here. All right, let's jump into what I call shameless self-promotion, uh -huh. right? So drop with us first in Maine, how we can find you, how we can book with you, how we can schedule where you're at, the kind of man that you're looking to cut hair with. And again, I've been a client for a few years now. Even in those dark years, I was still getting my hair cut by you here and there. And I haven't had my first haircut last one I had was at your place, your no, home. We, we did one here. Oh yeah, we did do one here. We yeah. did do the first one here. You're we right, did. you're right, you're right. But tell us a little bit about this shop, this store, and then how we can get a hold of you. First and Main, M-A-N-E, so F-I-R-S-T-A-N-D-M-A-N-E-A-Z.com, firstandmainaz.com, is where you can go to book your appointment, see the location, and that's where you can find us. You can find us on Instagram at first and main, F-I-R-S-T and M-A-N-E. You can find me on Instagram at dru.thebarber. We are at 7001 East Main Street, Suite 104 in Scottsdale, Arizona. The entrance is on the south side. The better entrance is on the south side with parking right there. You can also get in from the north side. There, there's signage up there. There's barber poles up there. The type of guys that we are looking to get in here as clients, really it's anybody, but my favorite clients are just interesting guys, man. Most of my job is sitting there making someone look good. I've gotten to the point where that's, I don't want to say, yeah, it's automated, right? But what I enjoy is just talking to interesting people. That's one of the best parts of the job. People that have cool stories that are in business, people that, you know, are open books. That's really what I want, man. Just good people who are driven in life. You are who you surround yourself with. And that, that includes with clients. I have clients from their bouncers at the clubs in Old Town to guys who own roofing companies and fathers of the future and just all car salesmen, medical device salesmen, CEOs, people who own gyms across the board. A bunch and, of just cool people. And what about your home or local meeting? If somebody's listening to this right now and they need to sober up, and we'll just use that term very uh -huh. simply, they need to get sober as fuck. What's your home meeting and what time and where is that? My home group is the Tuesday Night Men's Stag. It's at 7 p.m. at Cornerstone Healing Center in North Scottsdale. You can find them on Google Maps, Apple Maps, under Cornerstone Healing Center at 7 p.m. Tuesday night, and that's an all-men's meeting. There's also a women's meeting at the same location, but it's separate, and I believe that's more of a big book study. I am the speaker seeker at the 7 p.m. speaker meeting at North Scottsdale Fellowship Club on Sundays, and if anyone's looking for a sponsor, I am part of the Knights of the Roundtable, which is another men's group. We do a lot of charity work. We're outside AA, but there's a lot of good sobriety in there and good men. There's requirements in there like you have to be actively working your steps or through the steps. You have to have a service commitment. You have to be sponsoring guys and you have to have a home group. So we really do the deal. 
Drew, you are a sober savage. And for anybody listening, you don't have to be broken to have a breakthrough. I've met and talked to men who don't have the same addiction problems that Drew and I have. Mm -hmm. But what they have is this low-grade fever. They're drinking one to three cocktails a night. They may not rage out, get in their car, drive 110, or get a Jägermeister tattoo on them. But that addiction is relevant in their life, and it's slowing them down. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big proponent of removing toxins from the body, the mind, and the soul. And one of the biggest ones you can decide to pour down your throat is alcohol. Obviously, there's other ones out there. But if this is you, if you're hearing this, man, like if you can't go 30 days without having a drink, regardless of what your relationship is with alcohol, you got a problem. 100%. I 1000% agree. And life is just so much better without it. It's crazy that we do poison our bodies to get this dopamine hit. And oftentimes it's because we're not okay with ourselves and the life that we have. And we don't feel connection to the world around us, whether you're an addict or not. And it's only holding you back physically, mentally, spiritually. It's only holding you back. Go out there and help some people. Drew, your language is empowering and hearing you speak for the first time on this platform is just a great reminder of what you can become and what you can do with this life if you choose to. Thank you for being here today, brother. Thanks, Luke. Love you, dude. Love you too, man. If you got some empowering message from this, all we ask in return is that you simply pay it forward, send it to somebody you love, share it on social media. Um, And if you really loved it, give us a five-star review on Apple or any one of the platforms. Thank you for being here today. And remember, always a father of the future is somebody who shows up, is present, active, and engaged. Peace. Peace.